0: when you're purely in that moment and you are living that and feeling that and especially when you're on the pass and you're directing that orchestra that is that sweet spot of perfect bliss and there's nothing like that and that's why i could just do the pass and dress plates every night of my life for the rest of my life
1: this is the crackling i'm anthony huckstep Some chefs recognize that the link to great produce and quality butchering enables them to create the very best eating experiences. For Scott Pickett, the chance to create his own butchery to supply his restaurants was too much to resist as his restaurant group grew. What impact does the ability to break down whole animals and share the fruits of them with different venues in a group? Well, Scott, you've been taking on a lot of new restaurants at a time when a lot of restaurants have been struggling. What's it been like in the last year and a half taking on some really iconic venues and opening some new venues as well?
0: It's been an absolute roller coaster, to be honest with you, Huck. Um, It's probably, I mean, if we start with Long Rain, uh, that was something that I like I've always loved Long Grain, it's a great space, it's a great restaurant, great brand, great people, great food, you know, it's it's truly iconic. And I suppose, you know, when I heard about that first and foremost, um, that I just didn't want Melbourne to lose an is- like an institution and an icon. So um, like I gave John a call, you know, John Van Handel, we went for a couple of walks around the Tan, met for a coffee at Matilda. And, you know, he's at the stage of his life where he just kind of you know, really just didn't want the hassle, really, of COVID and everything, and he's kind of relocating and putting his time in bar. And so, you know, I said that I wanted to take on the, you know, the beast, which has been great for me to learn a new cuisine last year. I mean, I've always done a little bit of Asian in our food, you know, here and there, sort of Southeast Asian-inspired flavours, but not, you know, but I'm no expert by any means. So that's been great to really like in my 40s, develop and understand a new cuisine and to run a great restaurant and a great business um, and to really just work on sort of mentoring the team there and, and you know, seeing what Long Grain 2.0 is. And, um, you know, that's going really well. I mean, Providence is going well for us. Pick up and Takeaway is going well. It's obviously a terrible time for every restaurant out there. But, you know, we've survived through these 18 months since I kind of bought it and, you know, just waiting to open up and get ready, you know, to go with Long Song. We've done a little bit of a refurb up there and that's going to be a bit more of a, like a bar and function event space where, because it's such a massive space and it's a beautiful building. But it was just too big. Like, unless it was two or 300 people in there, it didn't have any energy. And so we've kind of zoned that off into four or five little areas so we could have different events or you can come for a drink or, you know, a bit of kind of, um, Thai street food over uh, coal and stuff up there. So that'll launch when, you know, when we're finally out of this mess and allowed to go as well too. So yeah, that's the first one. And then, um, yep, yeah, and then Chancery Lane that's in the uh, former Vooda Mon site that Shannon had, I think, for about 15 or 16 years where he had Vu there before he went up to Rialto and then Bistro Vu and then Ikejimi. Uh And again, I knew that was, you know, that Shannon... Um, you know, was looking to move on from there and the and 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 the ownership group and stuff and it's always been like an iconic restaurant and a wonderful restaurant space and a beautiful building and I hadn't done much in the city and we're kind of going against the grain a bit but I just thought it was great to do a kind of, you know, contemporary European bistro in there as well too. So we built that, you know, trying to use our downtime as effectively as we can.
1: Well, one of the interesting things about the downtime and the use um of of that time has been the building of um, an area at Estelle and bringing on a full time butcher. Can you tell us about the program that you have there?
0: Yeah, so to set ourselves up, it's kind of funny that I kind of had all these ideas kicking around for a while, and COVID just gave me the time and the headspace, and maybe the um, you know, the self belief when you think that you know you could possibly lose everything that's completely out of your control to even go the other way and buck the trend. So. I'd had my eyes on a little warehouse that's right at the back of the store, like like it's literally fifty meters away. You know, to do a production kitchen, or a prep kitchen, um, and like like we actually call it the man cave because I haven't got a shed at home and I want a little little spot to store my Harley and just a little workshop. So I've kind of got that, and then the kitchen built and an office and a little kind of. Um, like a reading meditation room with lots of cookbooks and stuff and everything. But I thought that with the amount of restaurants and the size of the group now that we'd take our butchery program in, um, in-house. in So I've got a full-time – I've got two full-time butchers. Um, like I've got a dry-aging room that's probably about – Twelve square meters, probably about three by four, I suppose, two by five, or something about ten, twelve square meters. Um, and so now, what we're doing is, you know, the scales of economy starting to kick in, where I kind of got to the stage, you know, when we're fully operational, we might do a hundred ducks a week at Matilda, and you know, fifty to stall, and fifty or seventy at Chancery Lane, and. And 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 to even dry age the ducks, we can like we don't have the space and the time in, in the restaurants to have three, four, five hundred dry aging at a time. So we dry age all our own ducks in there, you know, get those processed dry aged grass fed and, and grain fed beef. But I started a charcuterie program as well too, and we've got a slide rail in there that goes through from the you know, there's a boning room that's next to the dry age room. I finally bought a bandsaw, right, that had been a live stream to get a bandsaw. <laughs> And, and and you know, with spring coming, we'll be doing whole lambs as well too. But we do, you know, two to four sort of whole pigs a week as well too. Um, and all the old fridges from Voodamond, all the old kind of um, uh, bar fridges, I had them converted and signed off and done for in-house recruiting programs. So we've got sort of temperature controlled in there, rods and everything. So we've got everything from... Um, you know, your prosciutto to copper to sausages on sec to prosola. and now that we've started the meat stuff, um, you know, primarily pork, obviously with you know with all that kind of sausage on stuff. Is now we're starting, you know, to look in, into a bit of fish as well too. But we're doing our own own bacon,s own sort of hamons, you know, jambon de paris, you know, lots of different stuff. So we've used this time to really uh, research and evolve and develop our program, you know. So that's amazing having that in house.
1: So when you get the whole pigs in, how do you break it down and use the different – what are you using the different sections for?
0: And so the shoulders – so we'll go through different stages depending on, on what the restaurants are using when, it, when when they're operational. But we've got like a like a dry-aging room. Then we've got the wet-aging or the wet room for uh, box meat, but that also has pickles and brines and preserves and salting in there. And so the shoulders will go to prosciutto. Um, The loins will leave kind of whole but then cut them through the bandsaw so that, you know, the full racks are like are still on the bone and they'll dry age for, you know, two, three, four weeks before we send them to the restaurant and then all the legs... Um, get boned out, and they go in into the charcuterie program. And then with the heads as well too, you know, um, uh, different types of uh, pressed terrines, pig's heads, terrines, ears. So we'll process the whole pork and really do the whole nose to tail, and then we'll allocate sort of certain um, sections and cuts, you know, either for the dry age program, for the restaurants, for the charcuterie, for pork mints, uh, for stuff that goes to long grain. I mean, one of the great things now is we've got, are different restaurants that have different styles of food and different cooking techniques. So when the when the meat's dry aged already, when the butcher gets the pork in you know, it'll go, Okay, so I've got four racks coming on here and then I go to Matilda or the belly or you know, the racks might go to Chancery Lane. The bellies might get sort of hot smoked at Matilda for breakfast bacon or for the egg and bacon rolls there that we do on weekends. And then the shoulders might be on salt for a while before they dry age and cure then, you know, which are probably coming on. The first batches are probably three months away from having 12 months on sort of dry age um, and the curing process of the prosciutto and then the legs boned out and then used. And then we'll look at what we want to do with the neck and different pieces. So, and then bones will into stocks and
1: sauces. Do you remember the first time that you broke down a whole a whole pig and, and what sort of impact did it have on you? I started with smaller animals
0: and this is what I kind of go through when I do sort of in-house butchery with the team and I do programs or training sessions is we'll start with rabbits. Yeah, really, because the bone structure, this is something that like a lot of people forget that the bone structure is very, very similar on a rabbit to a hare to a, a spring lamb to a pig, you know, to a cow, really, you know, the joints are very, um, you know, there's more cuts as the, you know, there's more muscles and more cuts as the animal gets bigger. But if I want to take off the hind legs or if I want to take off the shoulders or if I want to look at the rack, it's much easier to handle, you know, a two-kilo rabbit than it is a 60, 70, 80-kilo pig. And so I started, like like with rabbits, and was trained through that and then I did a huge amount of sort of full – like a whole animal butchery when I was in London at the Square, you know, we'd, I'd do 30, 40, 50 hairs a week and then sort of spring lamb as well too. And then when I got back to Australia, we'd do a lot more, you know, lamb, pork, um, you know, butchery really too. But then enjoying the fact that you can use the crackle, that you can use the skin, that you can use the fat, that you can break it all down, that you can trim it up as to how you want and really cut through. So first time I probably did a pork was uh, late 90s, I suppose.
1: You spent a lot of time in the UK um, cutting your teeth over there. What, what, what sort of impact did that have on you and your cooking style? It probably,
0: look, as a professional, as a cook, I thought I was pretty good like most young lads do before they go to the UK and then cook with the big boys. It probably took my intensity at that time to the next level, my work ethic and my like attention to detail. But I think when you think about it as an actual cook is what I learned from um, – you know, from Phil Howard at the square is really about the marriage of flavors and about trying to keep food simple as you like as simple as you can and just execute really great technique, great produce as always that every chef uses. So that's the backbone of any great cook, really as seasonal as it can be uh, these days, as local as it can be um, and just season, you know, well cooked, you know, simple food.
1: What was it about being in those brigades that um, was so defining for you? I think I think the pressure and the intensity and the
0: striving for perfection daily like I mean in those days the square was doing 80 for lunch and 120 for dinner it's not a 30 or 40 seater you know you know like it's not a 30 or 40 seater two star that's pushing for three it was a great business it was a great restaurant but you fucking worked hard too and it didn't matter it's the only kitchen i've ever been in my life it didn't matter how hard you worked and how much you pushed you know doing 15 16 17 hour days you were still completely empty you know you you know the next day because you just can't prep for 200 covers every day on the hot lard or on the veg or on the fish and be boxed for the next day so it really taught me how to work on my time and how to multitask and how to uh, bail myself out of the shit every day which kind of helped in in the early days of estelle when there was only three in the kitchen you know
1: you mentioned that uh your time and Phil Howard also um, allowed you to understand the balance of flavours. Are there any dishes from that time that you can tell us about?
0: Look, I mean, one of the best things about there, if we think about, you know, game birds or meat and that kind of stuff, is Phil like to use different cuts and he liked to use the whole animal where we could or two or three or four multiple cuts. So we might get obirico pork from Spain. It's a beautiful... Um, you know, that's a beautiful free-range pig and then we might cure the bacon and then use that sort of like at a later date and and do a rolled sort of torsion of the head and then roast, you know, the loin on the bone and then, you know, seam out the leg and then, you know, cook – Uh, Cook different cuts, different ways with different techniques. It wasn't all just in a pan. Some were poached, you know, some were cooked sous vide, some were steamed, some were roasted, some were grilled and so different cooking techniques for different cuts and then do an acid of pork or an acid of lamb or something or maybe hair or something, you know, so you're using and really appreciating the whole animal itself.
1: You mentioned you only had uh, three people in the kitchen in the early days at Estelle Take us back to that time. What, what were the challenges of, of getting that off the ground? Uh, me,
0: <laughs> I suppose I was pretty I was pretty wild in those days, huckers. You know, I was um you know very hardcore. Uh, you know, there was only a small brigade. We really pushed the limits with our sort of multi course tasting menus. A tiny tiny kitchen. Um, you know. I was drinking and partying pretty hard in those days as well too. So it was, you know, it was one of those baptism of fires of your first restaurant, um, where you just want everything to be perfect, but you don't have the budget. You know, you can't afford plates, you can't afford trays, you can't afford stuff that you need. And then over time, as you build up the cash flow and the business itself, you can reinvest and kind of get to, you know, where we are now with seven venues plus the country coming on down the coast later on in the year. So, you know, when we started, there was five full time staff in the group. Uh, now, you know, even though we're in lockdown on and off, in between normal operations now be, you know, we're about between 250 and 300. And then by Christmas with the Conti, we'll be at about 500, you know. So it's crazy that in 10 years you've gone from five to 500 staff and, and just like accepting uh, how my role changes as well too, you know.
1: Was that ever your plan to have so many venues and so many staff?
0: Never, 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 never. I wish I had a two, three, five-year, ten-year plan. It just, look, I'm a man that's obsessive like, you know, most good cooks, and sometimes you just can't say no, and as much as I love food and like being in the kitchen I also love the challenge of running a restaurant or having an idea really primarily or a dream and this is what I put it down to I kind of get bored very easily so like I get the restaurant set up in 12 18 months you know then I'll leave it to the boys and I'll you know touch base at Matilda you know once you know I'll do one or two services a week there now but I'll spend the mornings in the stall because that's where where my office is and I'm around the corner and I'll share my dinner service times. I still do six dinner services a week when we're going, um, and I like to you know run the business in in the business during the day and I just don't do prep anymore. But then I enjoy the service and then I'll work on the on the new dishes. I'll do the pass or just go cook a section for the night or just dress plates or have that fun you know that fun time when I've got good cooks around me that are running it day to day and then I can just slot in. Um but it never really you know never really was the plan it's just I really love having a dream and an idea and a and the concept and then thinking about it and then whether it be three months or six months or three years later actually going through the whole process of design of marketing of branding of you know kitchen build you know the build process itself and then opening the restaurant i mean that's the you know that's the dream really isn't
1: it has this changing of your role has it and the time away from the kitchen? Has it changed the way that you uh, use produce and cook? I have a clearer mind now
0: in some respects too because I'm not caught up in the daily grind of what things are. So when I do... You know, I'll still get to the kitchen, you know, probably three, four o'clock in the afternoon and be there till ten or eleven. So I'm still doing forty hours a week at night times in the kitchen, you know, but when we open a venue like Chancery Lane, I'll be in there the whole time. You know, normally we're in, you know, and same as when we open the Conti down at Sorrento, I'll be there for the first three months in the kitchen with the team, you know, pushing on and making sure it's right. And then when it's settled, you know, then I'll manage the business a bit more and then and then kind of slot in and out of services. But it gives me a clearer mind to walk in and see things that the guys that are in the daily grind don't always see. Or to have an outside perspective and an overall view on whether the food is where it needs to be, whether we can improve it, but also what the customer's experience is. Is, you know, walking the customer's path, whether it be through the front door, through the tables, you know, trying to think about what they are so that I'm not just solely focused on the kitchen and I'm letting the, you know, the younger team, you know, they have fresh ideas and great ideas and different things, let them, you know, find their path as well, too.
1: Tell us a bit about Pickett's Deli and Rotisserie. I know that uh, we can't fly internationally at, at the moment, um, but tell us about that business and, you know, when we are flying again, what, what What's it going to be offering? Well, I love a
0: good sandwich. I love a sandwich and I love a roast beef cooked on the rotisserie or roast pork with that beautiful crackling that's slow cooked and you put a loin of pork on there and it rolls and it's juicy and it's crispy and it's salty and it's crunchy. And having that in great bread with coleslaw or doing a Reuben or some pickles and loads of butter and maybe a dirty gravy, that to me is 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 the idea of a perfect lunch, you know, like a big crusty roll with big roast carved pork and apple sauce and a slaw or something. You get that in there and it's hot and sour and salty and crispy and crunchy and there's acid in there. It's just delicious. So, you know, we serve lots. Like we kind of do two ends of the spectrum there. We do the really healthy salads, you know, the healthy sandwiches, you know, you know, healthy breakfast, and then we go to the other end of the spectrum where we do everything that's dirty and naughty and horrible and full of cholesterol and fat and crackling, all the good stuff that you can't have all the time. So that'll be coming back on with the rare roast beef sandwiches and the slow-cooked pork that goes on on the rotisserie every morning at 6 a.m. and it slow cooks for three or four hours and then it's ready for the lunchtime kind of, you know, uh, dirty roast roll of the day.
1: You've got so many different venues now. And you'd love the time to be creative and think of what the opportunities are. Tell us about that creative process and where you see opportunity from a restaurant and culinary perspective.
0: That comes in random moments of time. What, you know, the difficulty i have these days is switching from the left to the right or the right to the left, where you're thinking about numbers or business or operations or paying the bills or getting through COVID or that kind of stuff, and then flipping to the other side where you've got a clear mind to be creative. And it's probably it's something that when I first took over the point uh, in back in you know, 04, and I was 27, you know, 28, that was probably the hardest time to be creative because it always cooked other people's food. And unlike the chefs coming through now, you know, the internet had only really just started. There wasn't social media. There wasn't this, you know, this avalanche of ideas and information and technique and, like, and images. So it probably took me two or three years, like, really, I struggled with it in the early days to not just cook dishes that I'd been trained as a chef to party or sous chef, like, to reproduce and to step outside the box and then find our own cuisine. So now that I tapped into that and I understand how my brain works like a little bit at least now when I feel that you know coming on and I suppose it's like being a writer or a painter there is writer's block there sometimes sometimes you can't paint sometimes you can't think or talk but when I get inspired by something and then it could be something that I see in the street or a product or a conversation or you know whether it's raining today or it's sunshiny today or I see something or smell something or I have an idea or a distant memory, and once that starts to go, then I try to remove myself from wherever I am and let that flow. And for me, normally, that's when I clear my brain after service and I come back to a cell most nights. at sort of 10 o'clock just to wind up my day. And then once I've been through emails and business and stuff and everything, if there's not too much going on, then I might just start reading a cookbook or I might just start kind of thinking about it like a core ingredient, like I might think about pheasant or I might think about a carrot or I might be – and then I'll just let my brain go with that. I've got, like, uh, notebooks and scrapbooks and spreadsheets now because I work in – I might just have pork. And then I'll just sit there and I'll think about all the different cuts and all the different things we can use and all the different cooking techniques and all the different ideas, and I'll do a brain dump, you know, that might take 20 minutes or, like, might take four hours. And then I've recorded that stuff, and, and then it might have – you know matching ingredients and I read another book and I might think about the umami or making your own miso or a different plate up or a different portion size or if it's an entree or or how it's cooked and and then I'll become kind of obsessive and just chase that kind of rabbit hole as far as I can until it like i'm done, and then I'm like right I'm exhausted, you know that's enough.
1: yeah save and go home and sleep amongst chefs you're considered a chef's chef, and many chefs talk about wanting to eat your food and the your ability to to bring flavour to dishes and and create harmony. Um, do, do you have any pork dishes over your career that have really stood out that sort of exemplifies you as a chef?
0: I think probably, if I think about it, it was one that, I, firstly, that's great to hear. That's really, really nice because I am a bit of a cook's cook. I'm one of the... Boys and the lads, some would say so much, you know, you know, too much. And they're trying to push me off the pass now a little bit as I get older. I mean, I'm 45 now. I've been doing this for 30 years. I come in and do the pass. And the boy's like, chef oh, you don't have to. I'm like, but fucking what else do I do? You won't let me cook the sauce anymore. You know, don't let me dress plates and do the service. You, you know, that's the best part of my week and my day is I did a suckling pig dish, whole suckling pig at the point where we would bone out I would basically butterfly or bone out the whole suckling pig with the head off and lay it flat. Then I would take the shoulders out, mm-hmm. bone out the legs, take the shoulders out, take the skin off, and then put the skin back into where the rib cage is and the belly. They're only small. Split it down the seam of the backbone in the middle so it's two pieces. And you basically get a large rectangle that we would then salt cure um, with salt, 10% sugar, herbs, and aromats leave that for 12 hours, rinse, dry, glue the shoulder back into this kind of rib page uh, uh, belly, and then that's the same thickness as the leg, cook that slowly overnight for about 14 hours at uh, 68 degrees, and then we would press that, and you basically get a pork belly, your kind of shape and size and thickness, but it was suckling pig. Then we would take that out. You get a beautiful jelly around, the jelly we then use for the sauce that I'll get to in a moment. But then we would cut a beautiful block and on the side of the top, old school would put a piece of parchment and would slowly render the skin. And it was just skin down until you get this perfect glass-like suckling pig skin. Yeah, that's a puck. And we would keep the jelly and all the cooking liquor, do that with a reduced pork jus with lots of cider and apple juice, do like in the Spuma, so it was like a whitier Spuma of pork and apple with a little celeriac apple salad, some nettle puree and then a pork jus. Yeah, but I remember that one. Yeah, And that was probably a 5 a six. Yeah, 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 cracking dish.
1: You've, uh, it's pretty well documented the changes that you've implemented in your personal life uh, to deal with mental health and alcoholism. Um, What sort of impact has that change had on you, though, in your cooking? I think, look, in my cooking, I probably can't
0: tell you too much. I don't see it like that. But I would think that for me personally as a person, as a cook and as a chef, I'm probably a little bit calmer. But if someone said to me at 35 and that's, you know, coming down maybe one rung or two, maybe 12, depends on the mood and the service, obviously. But um, if someone said to me, like I was a functioning Like I was a functioning, you know, alcoholic, you know, I didn't drink during the day, but I'd partied three, four, five, six, seven nights a week since I was 16 till 35 pretty much. Um, And that was just the norm. That was accepted in the 90s, was accepted in the early 2000s. And I was kind of regarded and revered for being, you know, one of the hardest working guys that kind of burned the candle both ends. And I thought I was fine. And then at 35, if someone could say to me, do you know what, you're not out you're actually not operating at your full potential, even though I thought that I had for many, many years, you know, because I'd done well, I'd run great kitchens, I'd worked in great kitchens. It was that sort of sense of reward and instant gratification because I'd had a big day, I'd worked hard, I'd smashed it, then I could go out and have 27 beers, you know. Um, And if someone said to me, right, we can give you another 20 or 30% of your mental capacity, your body will feel better, you'll be clearer, you're more focused, you'll be a better cook, a better person. You know, you'd sign up for that, like, every single day of the week. And it was really only when there were people around me, right, that I could actually, the pointed it out, that I could actually, like, accept the fact that there was an issue there, that there was something that for an absolute control freak that I couldn't control. And so that's when I was like, well, actually, I think I need to fucking go and do something about this before it cost me my marriage and my restaurant and my life. And I didn't want to be another one of those guys. And so lots and lots of guys come through that didn't actually uh, fulfill their potential because of, you know, drug or alcohol abuse or because of the toll that the industry really takes on
1: people. Well, the transformation has been remarkable in in the sense of just the sheer volume of quality establishments that are very well recognized and and your ability to maintain those standards. Um, The industry's changed quite a lot though. But what sort of of advice do you have for young chefs these days? Because the, the chefing world's different to the one you grew up in.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know, you're very different. Our business model, you know, laws and regulations, understanding, you know, the expectation of the business owner and how things are. I always think back to when I was a young cook and I was 15, 16, 17, 18, and you look at the old man and he doesn't want to change and this is how it is and he knows best. And I'm like, you know, I never wanted to become a dinosaur and I didn't want us as a business and with our food and with our mentality and with our culture, you know, to be trapped in a period of intensity that I was in, because I look back on it now and I think there, there are going to be people in 10, 20, 30 years that probably are all, all already saying it, that, that will look at chefs from the 80s and 90s and think that we were the coal miners of the 20s and 30s and 40s in, in the north of England. They're like, why the fuck did you do that? Like, why would anybody do that? Like, why would you work that out? Why would you do that body? But that was the, you know, that was just the time. That was how it was. So what we now try to look for is how we can have a work-life balance on how there's nothing wrong with, you know, the team doing 40 hours or 38 hours for the juniors and stuff and 45 to 50 for the senior guys, me not feeling guilty about that. You know, the chefs that are in, in my generation don't feel guilty about taking a night off. Like, you know, there were guys in the 90s, you know, or even before that, like, like or even Donovan Cook when I came back in you oh know, two oh three. 2003, you just didn't miss a dinner service in your restaurant. Yeah, Phil Howard didn't miss a service. You know, like like a 93, 94, 95. Yeah, but like Philip Michel just would not miss a service. Because that was just ingrained in them. That is how it was. You were there every lunch, every dinner, you were just there. Done. Now the whole transformation is that, yeah, chefs, and that's allowed me to do what I do now as well too, like without really being frowned upon, is that is that chefs don't have to be in their kitchen all the time and they're not expected to, you know, with multi-venues. But what they are expected to do is ensure that the consistency and the passion and the love and the training for their staff is still there and then that gives you a freedom for me to work on other projects or have a different insight into what we do and to break the shackles and to grow and evolve. And so, look, I think the one piece of advice for like a young chef would be, is to not put too much pressure on yourself as to what your path is going to be because it'll work itself over time. But work for good people and surround yourself with good people. And if that's in a fine dining restaurant, that's fine. If that's in a cafe, that's at a golf club, that's in a, you know, sporting club or anywhere, right? Like an you know, Italian pizza restaurant, like it doesn't matter. But just try your best every day and try to be the best version of yourself that you can be.
1: What is it that you love about what you do?
0: Um, honestly. <laughs> Yep, I love the adrenaline. I'm an adrenaline junkie like most guys, you know what I mean? Whether that be true, you're riding fast bikes, driving fast cars, dirt bikes, you know, the adrenaline of a certain, you know, in the early days, you know, younger days, you know, know, drugs and alcohol, that kind of, you know, living on the edge and pushing things to the limit is that adrenaline of a service and watching a team of chefs actually perform when they're pushing to their limit and you're just like fuck that piece of beef's cooked perfectly that's glazed and it's not just one or two plates but it's hundreds of plates a night and you're in that rhythm there is nothing else well there's a couple of things in life that I probably can't discuss but there's not much else that actually when you're purely in that moment and you are living that and feeling that and especially when you're on the pass and you're directing that orchestra And seeing that, that is that sweet spot of perfect bliss and there's nothing like that. And that's why I could just do the pass and dress plates every night of my life for the rest of
1: my life. Well, that's pretty amazing, Scott. And what you've built there, um, especially with the butchery, um, what sort of impact do you think that's going to have on the way that your restaurants operate when you do open up again?
0: Well, now we – look, we've always bought great meat and the best we can, but now we can access, you know, smaller producers, buy by the pallets of the larger stuff, like we can handle it. You know, we can take it all in-house – Right, so there's a cost saving obviously there, right, which is great because we could pass that on on to the customer as well too, or we can offset it through our food cost, you know, so that you know, we might be able to sell the lobster cheaper or the caviar or different things as well too. But what is also great is it's great for training the young cooks, you you know, that come through. Because part of that, you know, we've got this internal apprenticeship program that we've kind of you know, just getting off the ground is the guys can now come to us and girls and go, okay, well, I might spend six months at Long Rain and six months at Matilda and I might learn Thai food and I might learn over fire and I've got a young apprentice that's probably almost at his six months mark now in the prep kitchen that spends time with the butcher one day a week actually looking at whole animal butchery, right, and then understanding functions and events and then processes like that and then understands dry ageing and it makes you crudery. And then he goes to charcoal uh, um, um, um uh, um um the Chancery Lane and he cooks kind of you know Rob Cabord's kind of European uh, bistro food, and so there's so many different styles and so many things to learn that now we can really train and multi skill and show the staff so many different things and that you know you, you know disappreciation you know for the whole animal and for using different cuts in different ways yeah you know actually cook differently i mean that's you know you know that's really what it's all about isn't
1: it well, Scott. Um, it's absolutely extraordinary what you've built and obviously it's ongoing as well and very much looking forward to seeing what happens when Melbourne opens up again in the next couple of months. Um, what are you most looking forward to? Uh,
0: having people in the restaurants just so we can enjoy really what a restaurants are um, ultimately about, and that's about the people and having that energy and that feeling and that aura, um, and the, the, the enjoyment on the customer's faces, but also on the staff's faces, you know, that are actually back in the swing of what they do and that personal connection, you know, through food for me, that's,
1: you know, that's, you know, that's really what we do it for. Well, Scott, we've loved having you on The Crackling today to hear just a part of your story. Um, no doubt we'll hear much more, so please keep in touch and, um, we'll catch up again soon.
0: Yeah. Cheers, Huck. You take care, mate, and best of luck with everything.
1: Thank you. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Stars. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.